This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. And welcome back to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Hour two of our show as we introduce you to some of the uh, Zhejiang China Eisenhower Fellows from 2017. We have a wide range of people that have had unbelievable experiences uh, over the last year, and it's a pleasure for us to be able to bring some of their experiences to you. Uh, One of the areas of focus is education and leadership. And we have two ladies that have spent a part of their last year in China looking at those two elements. One is Kelly Davenport, who's executive director of Build Your Future, which is based here in the Philadelphia area. And the other is Allison Young, who's executive director of the Institute for Strategic Leadership here at Drexel University. Ladies, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. So I'm very interested to know how Build Your Future really started. Build the Future started out of a project before that called the Freire Charter School in Philadelphia, which started in 1999. Uh, It was a school of – it is still a school of 500 kids, uh, 99% self-identify as low-income, coming from neighborhoods here in Philadelphia that – are probably some of the lowest income zip codes, Mm. and it has had great success. And out of that, uh, we have now built four schools, and Build the Future is the support and uh, leadership arm of those four schools and advancing our mission at a bigger level. The the fact that you're being able to start to impact the lives of of kids, especially here in the Philadelphia area, how important is that to you personally and, and as well professionally? Uh, You can be part of the problem or part of the solution in life. And for me, it's probably next to my own children, the most important thing of my life. The kids of this city and kids across this country and our globe that don't come and aren't born in a zone of privilege, in my belief system, need to have access to probably even better schools than the schools of kids who are born into privilege. I think that that is probably one of the most important things to keeping peace or bringing more peace to our world and more justice and prosperity. You've been looking at part uh, through your fellowship at Education Equality. Tell us why that is so important to you. Uh, it's, it's so clear uh, that education is one of, not the only vehicle, for our future and being able to access All of the skills that education provides is probably one of the most, the greatest opportunities that we can give kids and is one of the the things that levels the playing field. Mm -hmm. China, which is where I spent my fellowship time, has in its five-year plan right now, after having spent 30 years building an infrastructure to provide basic education to all of its citizens, and now 98% of those citizens do have access to basic education. But China has now said in current time that its next focus is bringing a more equitable system of education. So uh, for me, it was looking from a very different perspective place and culture at what that means, what equity is, Mm -hmm. to see if there were things that I could learn and bring back here inside of this idea of equity, the haves and the have-nots. Is there a way to reframe that conversation? Is there a way to restructure the way that we teach or how we teach or or how we fund things? What could we learn from China that could help 
all of us, not just the kids that come from zip codes of low income, but really that helps all of us. And those ended up being what? Well, the first thing that I learned when I landed in China was they don't even really talk about equity. They talk about balance. And so the framing of the problem is important, particularly in in how you find a solution. So the way the Chinese are framing the problem is completely different than the way we frame the problem. And their solutions center around a centralized vision um, and a decentralized sort of uh, point of – um, delivery, like point of program. Mm-hmm. And so from a centralized point of view, they all, no matter, there are, there are uh, 14 million teachers in China. And no matter where I went, they all will tell you about equity and its importance and their vision. And so the idea and the vision are, are something that's held by everybody there, not just the poor or the rich. We have a very different system here. And then how each province and each school starts to achieve equity is really left up to the school, except for maybe 10, 10 points of action from the Ministry of Education, such as trying to recruit the best and brightest teachers, right. to put the best and brightest teachers in the places of most need, to train those teachers in pre-service teaching, in-service teaching, and post-service teaching in a methodical, deliberate way. And for those schools that are high-performing, to have those schools that are high-performing work collaboratively and deliberately with schools that are low-performing, and to form a partnership that helps to bring about more equity or balance. Uh, part of what you were looking at, Allison, was involving more equity for women, but also in the public sector as well. Okay. Tell us what you were looking at specifically. Well, Dan, I spent, before coming to uh, Philadelphia at Drexel University, I spent 15 years in government in Washington, D.C., uh, both working in Congress and then at the White House under President Bush. And um, there that my fellowship was reflective of my own experience. There aren't a lot of women leaders in government. And so um, I started doing a comparative study of um, women around the world, particularly in G20 countries and where there are women of influence. And um, currently, even globally, not just in G20 countries, there are about 38% of uh, countries that have had or do have a woman leader. Um, it's not enough. You know, we're 52% of the population. And so from a research perspective, what I wanted to look at reflecting my own experience and then knowing what we know um, about movements around the world, it's a particularly timely topic here in the U.S. Right. as well, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, women leaders. So, And here in Pennsylvania, you know, we don't have a single woman representing us in Congress. Sure. It's really, it's, you know, so that there's, there's some neat data points to start from, from a research perspective. But uh, what I wanted to look at in China was uh, with my first communist government, because what the Eisenhower Fellowship enabled me to do is it opened this network is incredible. Right. And it opened so many doors for me to have honest and candid conversations about what it's like inside that system. Um, and so uh, China ha- has an interesting way of uh, I think we all all of our experiences were we were reflective of this. There's a vision and they execute against it with full force. When it comes to women being represented in their government, what that means is a quota system. Right. We can talk a lot about wh- whether that has or hasn't advanced the causes of women in the last 30 years in China. You know, there are definitely some cultural differences that are that are impacting women's experiences there. But um, the thing that I've been – that's uh, f- focusing my work since I've been back is um, w- in the countries – and there are many around the world that have these quota systems. What's it doing? 
most, and particularly in China, when they have the ability to appoint people, to bring people up through the party system in this very hierarchical communist way of looking at things, um, they get to the numbers and that's it. So is the quota yeah. really working? Right. To me, that demonstrates that there's no real buy-in to what we're trying to prove that we know in the corporate literature that you know women are uh, more effective in decision-making, more collaborative. Um, if that's in the effect that's the bottom line of the companies, if that's true in corporate, what could that be in the public sector? And how would our public policy look different around the world if more women were at the table? Do you think that's a global issue? I mean, obviously, you focused on China and you also mentioned here in the United States as well. But then you have examples over in Europe and they may be you know, here and there, yeah. but Angela Merkel in Germany, Theresa May mm-hmm. uh, in England. There are examples of it. So is it a global problem in your in your view? I don't want to frame it as a problem because okay. I, I've all, I just reject this view of women as victims in any sure. way. And right. so um, what, I, where, what I do think is there are opportunities. Germany is a, is a great one. You know, um, Angela Merkel is um, well-respected on the, on the international stage. She's still their first woman leader, right? Sure. Germany's got a, a much longer history than Angela Merkel. Um, so, um, but there are, there are many. There are, uh, I was, uh, there are currently eight countries, Germany's one of them, that have their first woman leader ever. So um, it's not just in Europe, it's in Latin America um, and, and South America where some of this is happening. So that to me is really interesting. What's enabling that to happen? Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, but I, what I think what's true about, if you look at it just from a data and a research perspective, the numbers don't add up. Right. right. So if you're looking at it from a purely math perspective, then women are underrepresented, uh, underrepresented. Um, if we're if we don't have a seat at the table, um, what does that mean? One of the really great things that happened this week with the Eisenhower Fellowships, we had this dinner the other night where we got to meet some of the trustees. And Christine Todd Whitman is uh, one of the trustees, of the Eisenhower sure. Fellowships. And she said to me, um, and, and she and I have some shared history too. Former um, former governor the, of New Jersey. Yeah. Former governor of New Jersey. Yeah. Um, like I said, this network is extraordinary through Eisenhower. But she said to me, Allison, you really need to look at um, what's going on in Congress right now. And I haven't. This was just the night before last, so I haven't looked into this. But she said the bills that are getting passed in Congress in the U.S. Congress well-known right now for kind of being a stalemate for everything. Sure. She yeah. said the things that are moving are the ones that are sponsored or co-sponsored by women. It doesn't mean that what, it, what, she, her, what she was trying to express was they're more collaborative from the beginning. So that's really what I want to look at is what's that process that if women are at the table, what, how are things actually moving and in, in, um, changing what's happening in society? And the thing that I've been that I've been stressing to my colleagues and you know talking to some of the other fellows about is um, having women at the table doesn't mean we're just talking about education and healthcare. Right. Important topics, but um, you know there are um, we I've been using Israel as an example and this amazing venture capital um, system that they've set up there that impacts women. That's part of um, empowering women to get into the marketplace. Women starting small businesses and things like that. So. Um, that's, I'm really interested in going, going beyond just education and healthcare, not to discount those, but I think it's really easy to segregate women into those two topics on a public policy level. So when you hear that, how does that uh, impact what you're doing in the education piece? Because to a degree, you're talking about the future of a lot of these kids and and a lot of women and potentially paths that, that they may go in their careers once they get through school or high school or whatever, you know, education piece they follow. Mm -hmm. Both in China and in the United States, I've learned that education is predominantly a woman-dominated field. But here in Philadelphia and here in in the United States, like, we need more men. 
We need more men of color in education. So I'm happy for women to be taking on other issues and making room for men and men of color. It makes such a difference. There are more women graduating from high school and from college and from postgraduate work than there are men. And part of that could be because, one, the educational system has been framed as a female thing, Mm -hmm. and it hurts our boys. But, two, we don't have enough men inside the educational realm. So I I say to Allison, go take, take some of those women, just help me recruit some of the talented, the talented African-American men in our city and Latino men and Mm -hmm. just folks who come from an unconventional look at education and can help solve the problem from a different viewpoint. But I think it is important to both of you is the fact that we focus so many times, I think, on, on what's happening here in the United States. And there are situations where we don't look outside to other societies, to other countries as to things that we could potentially bring back. And, and I think that's an important part to this discussion mm-hmm. uh, for your part, Allison uh, and Kelly as well. Allison, start on that. One of the most important lessons I learned when we were in China that really affected my ability to have candid conversations is to um, understand that they have just as much to teach us as we have to teach them. At the end of the day, we all want the same things. We have different ways of going about it. So my approach to that was to um, not only ask questions for my research, but give them an opportunity to ask me questions, too, about what's going on in the U.S. system. Right. Uh, when Kelly and I and our colleagues were in China, it was in June. So anybody – I think this still happens to anyone who travels internationally. They're very interested in what happened in the U.S. election. So <laughs> – you know, yes. these I had I had so many candid conversations because I was willing to share information um, about the U.S. and share some of my color on what happened, you know, in, in the U.S. presidential election, what's currently going on here. So that um, the invaluable part of my research has been these face to face conversations that are both ways that you just can't do over email or, you know, by phone. So um, the. The goal of the Eisenhower Fellowships is to create a more peaceful, prosperous, and just world. The projects that we were all pursuing were so diverse and so different, yeah. but the the unifying theme was this power of the face-to-face, people-to-people exchange that really furthered, um, I think, the our drive to get at some of these topics in a different way and to share, information's, uh, share information both ways, to get as much as we gave. Yeah, the, uh, to, to piggyback on what Allison is saying in a different way, I think, is that peace, prosperity, uh, justice, those are the goals of the Eisenhower program and of Eisenhower himself. And what I got to see uh, from my fellowship was how the Chinese define those things. <laughs> and, you know, prosperity for us is there are haves and there are have nots. Prosperity for the Chinese is that we will all have. Some of us just have now and some of us need a little more time to get. Right. Um, peace. China is a country that never declare, has never declared war, and it is something they take very seriously. And so there is a peacefulness to the people. They are not an aggressive people. And so we think about peace differently. Justice, justice because they have such faith in their government. You know, my translator every day would greet me with the following words, I can accept anything with an open heart. And she meant it. And, and so when we think about justice, again, it's looking at it from a different lens. And so what Eisenhower helped me do was to get out of the rhetoric and the polarized sort of world here in the West 
and to think differently like an Easterner about the three things that Eisenhower championed, particularly as we look at things like North Korea and how we bring about peace. We are joined here uh, in our studios by uh, Kelly Davenport, who's executive director of Build Your Future, and also by Allison Young, who's executive director of the Institute for Strategic Leadership uh, at Drexel University. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. So coming back here to the U.S. now, what has this experience meant to you, but in terms of your work at Drexel Mm -hmm. and how that may change, tweak, adapt what you're going to be doing with your institute over at Drexel University? I appreciate the question because when I originally wrote my proposal to Eisenhower, I said, I have this great curriculum where we've built a program for public sector leaders. Again, this is my passion. I spent 15 years in government, right? So we've built this great program for public sector leaders that really um, dives deeper into uh, giving them some business acumen. I know this very well. You learn those jobs on the fly. And so the people that are um, serving in the public sector, and our program is called Leading for Change. It's focused specifically on the Philadelphia city government. Um, But uh, you often learn what you need to learn as you're doing it. Maybe not always the most effective thing, but that's the the way that it works in the public sector. So we have this uh, curriculum that we've developed that is um, kind of business acumen for public sector leaders. And one of the things that I found really interesting in China as they're um, growing their cadres of women leaders is that they're interested in that exact same thing. Hmm. So um, I was – one of the six cities I visited was called Chengdu, and um, it's kind of in the western part of China in the mountains. Um, fun fact, where 80% of the world's pandas are bred and live. Um, so I did have a panda day. It was a good day. Um, but they, their Chengdu Women's Federation um, is very interested in sending some of their women here to experience that curriculum. They said, that's exactly what we need. Right. So that was – uh, that was an unintended, really fun consequence of, um, you know, what I'm going to do with it back here at Drexel. I, I want to continue the research and be the be the place where we drive this conversation about what will the world look like if there are more women at the table at a, you know, from a public policy perspective. But what I also found was that um, I have an ability to, on a very micro level, train up some of the um, Chinese women leaders who need something that's a little different in their system. One thing that Kelly and I had a couple of meetings together, and one thing that we heard constantly is that all of their people growing in leadership positions, not dependent on sector, have international experience. They're sending people abroad to the U.S., to Singapore. You know, we heard this constantly. So that global experience um, could be really valuable for the U.S. to really take advantage of and to be a player in what they know about the West and how um, both our government and our corporate systems work here. Which would probably be something that would be great thinking the other way. Uh, of women that are in this realm in the United States to be able to go and experience that, whether it be China or you know, whatever the country may be. And again, that's something that we really, I don't think, promote heavily here in the United States. It's so true. Um, I've had the privilege um, of, uh, of traveling all over the world. And every single time that I travel, and Eisenhower included, it's not it, – I go with a goal. There's something that you're trying to accomplish, whether it's vacation or you're doing research. But I always come back with something personally transformative. And for me, that was um, – Kelly has heard me tell this story that that was the big thing that happened to me in China, that the, when you get outside of our borders, when you experience another culture, and particularly this experience that allows you to be so immersed, it's such a nice luxury yeah. um, and such an indulgence that you really learn more about yourself and more about your place in this world, which I think um, maybe as Americans we lose perspective on a lot of times. Kelly? 
I think going to China actually helped me incre- increase my faith in humanity and the common connections that we have, despite this fast-paced, media-driven sort of world. Eisenhower, um, the friends in China that we made, really, we connected on so many levels. So using that as a backdrop, if we look in our country, we have two gifts. We are a democratic society, and we have rules of law. And what we don't have that China has is about efficiency, how to structure government so that it's nimble and it can serve people on the ground as quickly as possible. And so what I bring back um, is in my position, sometimes I work for the Department of Education and in my normal day job at Build the Future, is the opportunity to speak to where we need to bring more efficiency and more centralization into our education system. There are basic things that can help all of us. If we if we could really agree on a curriculum that was open enough that it could serve local communities, but it was structured enough that every kid got the basics like China has. Um, if we could agree on a change process that was quick inside, say, the school district of Philadelphia, um, those kind of things is where I'm going to be pushing because, again, I don't think that just helps the kids that I serve. It helps all the kids. Right. And ultimately, it fuels our democracy. So I'm really going to be looking at how to make things not only more equitable, but more efficient in bringing that equity. Which, which is interesting. Going back to your, your, your concept on really giving kids the basics, one of the things we've talked about on this show is financial literacy. And seemingly that's an area in education which is really underserved and probably it may very well be one of the ideas that you're thinking about that we need to enhance better in our education system here in the United States. Well, actually, there's a professor from Wharton who's partner with FS Investments down at the Naval Yard here in Philadelphia, and they have chosen one of my schools to talk about financial literacy for the next two years, not only with our kids, but with our parents. And so our parents are going to get seed money and learn how to invest that seed money in the stock market to help our kids eventually pay for college down the road. And so, yes, it's so much about not just the basic liberal arts, but about things like financial literacy. Speaking of parents, how can the parents play a bigger role in this process as well? Because certainly they are the people that we hope are driving the minds uh, of our young people. I think parents play an enormous role already. I think we frame this on deficit rather than on abundance. And when we talk about parents, I think parents are so engaged and love their kids more than anything. But for the kids that I serve and the parents that I serve who are already overstretched, uh, getting them engaged in a way that, that doesn't stretch them even further, like helping solve problems for parents, such as what this Wharton professor and FS Investments is doing, so that we can find ways to help, you know, seed a kid's dreams when they get out of high school or college, that there's a little bit of money there that was used, generated through the stock market. Things right. like that help parents. But I believe that parents really are partners in the education process and really are doing so much already to help our kids. Well, speaking off of efficiency, that word that, that that Kelly brought up, with your background, Allison, in government, efficiency seemingly is the one word that kind of is not used a lot, unfortunately, <laughs> in government these days, which is something that, that I think a lot of people, citizens of America, would love to be able to see where we could have a more efficient government, which obviously – could make so many facets of our lives that much better as we move forward. Well, Dan, like everything in life, there are trade-offs. You know, um, I I love the Philadelphia history we have here, and I find myself reflecting a lot on how we – 
you, when we had the uh, when the Declaration of Independence was originally written and when uh, the Constitution was created, we deliberately created this system that is slow and deliberative to prevent this kind of uh, tyrannical. Um, and I don't want to refer to China as tyrannical, but the the comparison between the systems is interesting. In China, they can push things through rather quickly, and they have this really efficient system, as Kelly said, of get this done, get this done. This is how it goes from um, from Beijing to the provinces to the townships, and it's and it's done, and it's just that. Yeah. But not a lot of people have a say in it. Right. And so there's there's a trade off. Maybe it could be more efficient, but would we have less opportunity to participate? And what are we willing to give up to get that? Uh, with with the idea of making things equal for women, uh, is your hope – and we mentioned a couple of the examples, people like Angela Merkel and, and Theresa May. Mm-hmm. But is it the hope that also that we are going to see that level of involvement at the local level as well? Because a lot of what starts in government starts with commissioners and, and mm-hmm. you know ward leaders and, and all of these different areas. Are those areas being served as well? We're seeing a lot of that right now. So here, here in Philadelphia, we'll use this as a microcosm. You know, since the election, we've had um, involved with a number of organizations around the city that are just trying to get people involved, whether they're young people or women. Um, I'm, I'm on the fence of whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic right now, because um, you know, in the first six months after the election, people were signing up for um, know how to run for state rep, become a ward leader, and people got really ginned up and they wanted to participate. And then we had this um, interim election, you know, where we had the uh, local elections, where we had um, local candidates for city controller and the DA, prim- the district attorney primary, and people didn't even show up. So it was like this outrage and this interest lasted for a couple of months, right. but then we lost it. Right. So right. I, I can't decide where we are. I'm hoping, you know, I really want to be a part of getting more of those people engaged, but it has, it's a, what people need to understand is in the American system, it's a long-term engagement. It's more than a protest or, um, you know, making a phone call. This is about what you're going to do and what you're going to commit to long-term. Allison Young is uh, with Drexel University. She's joining us here in the studio along with Kelly Davenport uh, of Build Your Future. This is Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We are talking with a group of Eisenhower fellows from this past year on a special edition uh, of Knowledge at Wharton. With the education piece here, and I'll, I'll speak locally just for a second with the city of Philadelphia. Obviously, a lot has been made in the local media. People listening to us around the country may not have known uh, some of the issues. They may have heard of them in other cities as well. What would you like to see in terms of the build out of education here in the city of Philadelphia, let alone potentially something that may be, as you kind of alluded to, if we could get a system that gives kids the basics, but also provides other opportunities as well? What are the things that you would like to see? What we've seen in the last 15 years in our country and across the globe, not so much in China yet, but is, is that we have access to so much data, so much information. Yeah. We can put uh, some sort of policy in place and see if it actually drives to the outcomes we're looking for. And because of that, in the field of education, there are six top performing countries on this globe in education who are taking kids from point A and moving them along a spectrum at great speed. And it's because of data and research that we have been able to identify what are the things that are making that happen. And so to the point about efficiency of government, I agree there are some things that are slow and deliberative, but there are other things that can be more efficient. And they can be because we are more scientific and we have more scientific information to drive to those outcomes. 
times. What I would like us to see, what I would like us to do here is to be more strategic, looking, benchmarking places, not only like China, but Singapore, Finland, Canada, Estonia, who are making just extreme advances, not only for the haves, but for all of their kids. And what's happening is that that's really stimulating the economy, providing better health care, increasing democracy and opportunity for all. And so what we need to do here is to distill those things. We know what they are. Benchmark them. Figure out how to make them local and meaningful to the people. Involve the voices of the people on the ground here. And then find a way for government to get out of the way, quite frankly, in those instances. In other places, certainly the slow deliberative process is wonderful. But we know as strategic leaders that there are different kinds of decisions that get made over time. And I think we have an opportunity to be mindful about what kind of decisions, what kind of time we are willing to give to things like women's issues or people of color issues. Our democracy depends on it right now. To a degree, aren't we also uh, – it feels like we are being underserved because of the fact we are a kind of a in-the-moment society here in the United States. You know, obviously we we consume content on our phones because we don't want to sit down and watch TV for a half hour. Uh, we have to have projects done quicker, faster, and better than ever before. That probably plays into a lot of what you just said. It does. And uh, I had the privilege through Eisenhower when I was in China of meeting the honorary chair of UNESCO – And what he said to me has profound connection to what you said. He said, education is a forward-thinking tool to increase humanity on earth. And so we can live faster, faster, faster. But that doesn't do a darn thing to increase the human connection, the ethical connection that we all have to each other. And so I think education, just as he suggested to me, particularly inside of this world of technology, needs to be slowed down, needs to be deepened. And that's what I mean by we can look at things and be deliberate about them in a very special way here that will have great benefit. Allison? About the the deliberative or the efficiency? Either one, because I think they're they're two very important yeah. important points. Um, the uh, I saw um, probably three things in China on a on a, from a public policy level that the efficiency um, has really been powerful as, uh, in advancing women. One is um, they uh, are through the uh, All China Women's Federation, which then has this very hierarchical system down through the provinces and the townships of how they unify um, what they're pushing uh, um, for women's policy on a national level. It's really impressive. 7,000 chapters of this organization. Uh Yeah, it's really, it's from the very, very town and local all the way up to national. Um, But they recently were able to uh, criminalize domestic violence, which has a profound impact on the Chinese culture. So, um, you know, that's one of them. The other one that really sticks out to me is a policy innovation that they created through this very efficient system that benefits women. Um, This may be a little controversial, here is um, they have a mandatory retirement age for women. They do they do also for men. There are some exceptions, but what but it's, they're probably different ages. It's, yes, it's fifty five for women. Yeah. And but what it's what it's changed in Chinese culture is you know Kelly referred to this a little bit. The you know culturally they value things differently. We we measure success differently than they do, and there in China so much of it is about the for all. And that's what this mandatory retirement age has done because it's kept families together in a way that whenever you walk around in whatever city we were in, you would always see people with gray hair with infants. 
Because what's happened is as people get to that mandatory retirement age, it does two things. And this is what was explained to me. They, it, does, it opens up the workforce for younger people to step into some of those roles. Right. But it also means that your parents are able to take care of your children. Right. So it keeps this yeah. family unit together. And it's this very kind of nationalistic, unifying, um, all-for-one kind of theory that they, that they have. But it's, those are the, the two of the main um, in policy topics that, have, that they've driven through in the last 10 years that I think are really fascinating for us to look at the process and right. what we can gain from that. Because it may, it may be hard to replicate that exactly, but you probably could take pieces off of that and incorporate it here in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. And it's all one of the great one of the great benefits of this program too is that you learn to be um, uh, efficient with your words. You know, particularly sure. when you're yeah. speaking through a translator. And so th- it's all about how we tell the story. The exact way they wrote these laws is not going to work here. But if you it can construct the story in a way and do a better job of storytelling around what are the long term benefits to society for actually making some of these things happen, it benefits not just family but our communities as a whole. And frankly, I think that. That's the rhetoric that we need to get back to in the U.S. and get people back into believing that they're part of a larger community and that we're not just in this individualistic society anymore. Uh, Go ahead, Cal. I'm sorry. Um, I was just going to say to that point, um, keep in mind the Chinese have lifted 600 million people out of poverty in the last 25 years. So to to your point, and, and, and the Chinese dream is the American dream plus family. In other words, it is the American dream, but it can't be driven by the individual. It is driven by society itself and the goodness of society. And that's what was so refreshing about this fellowship was seeing the Chinese have such faith in themselves and each other to lift each other out of poverty. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible story. Great having you both with us today. Thank Mm -hmm. you both. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you very much. Kelly Davenport, Executive Director of uh, Build Your Future, and also Allison Young, Executive Director of the Institute for Strategic Leadership at Drexel University. We will take a break. When we come back, we will finish up our Eisenhower Fellows special in just a minute as you're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 